Hey everyone, this is David. This episode of Positive Regression is sponsored by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries is a manufacturer of vitamin-infused CBD products, including gummies, tinctures, and energy shots. Now, there are plenty of CBD companies out there, but Sunday Scaries is the number one CBD company among millennials, and last year was awarded top accolades by Forbes, Men's Health, Allure, and Best Products. Speaking from personal experience, I prefer the gummies. I have them right here. In addition to the soothing effects of CBD, each gummy contains the recommended daily value for vitamins D and B12. I've also tried out their YOLO shots, which contain caffeine, so they calm me down and keep me focused on the task at hand, whether that's logging stats for motorsports analytics or editing this very podcast. Sunday's Gary's comes in handy. If you are a Positive Regression listener, you can give them a try right now by going to sundayscaries.com and using the coupon code POSREGPOD for 25% off your order. That's POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, 25% off everything at sundayscaries.com. On this episode, an in-depth look at defending your position during green flag pit cycles. It's more fun than it sounds, I promise. And some listener questions that we'll get to that include AJ Allmendinger's recent success. You want to guess how old he'll be next year? We'll tell you. All that plus our Talladega preview. But first, as always, this is episode 66 of Positive Regression. This is the Hideo Fukuyama edition. David, this was a good one to pick because an excellent little piece of NASCAR trivia, Hideo Fukuyama was the first Japanese driver to start a cup race. That happened in 2002 in a number 66 machine. But, you know, I remember him. Most of us remember him from that crazy time that NASCAR went way west all the way to Japan. And he was in those races out in Montague and the other one they had in Japan. Good pick, David. Yeah, he uh, he raced in the 1996 Cup Series exhibition in Suzuka. It was on the uh, the road course and he drove for Travis Carter in that race. He was punted uh, to to uh, to a DNF by Wally Dahlenbach that did not sit well with Travis Carter, who owned that car. Carter adored Hideo. So he brought him over to the States for a few races uh, four in total across 2002 and 2003. Those would have been his age 46 and age 47 seasons. Uh, now, two of them were last place finishes. So, you know, we are talking about him. We're saying his name. It's possible our listeners are probably pulling up his profile on racing reference. But even that, even his NASCAR starts sort of belie what he was as a race car driver. Alan, he was a champion in Japan in 1979. So if we put that into perspective, Dale Earnhardt Sr. was a rookie in the Cup Series wow. in 1979. Fukuyama was winning championships all the way back then. He finished second in his class in the 1988 Grand Prix of Le Mans. 
He won a Japanese touring championship in 1992. He won the Super GT championship in 1997, and he finally broke through to victory lane at Le Mans, class winner in the year 2000. So when he got to NASCAR, he was an accomplished driver. You don't, you know, he's not going to be on anyone's Mount Rushmore by any means, but he had a pretty solid resume to the point that these NASCAR starts really came later in his career. They were more or less a victory tour for Hideo. Very cool. And, you know, as a young child, you know, as I like to mention, just, you know, we are of similar age. I'm 37. And I certainly remember those uh, those exhibitions out to Japan. That was a big deal. That was that was different, man. I mean, that was before really the crest of NASCAR. So that was on the upswing in the 90s with with Jeff Gordon. And as a Rusty fan, I certainly remember because he won one of the races out there. So uh, that was a big deal. So to have that crossover eventually come to the other side of the pond, that was cool. Yeah. You know what I remember most about those races was struggling to stay awake because they were on at an absurd hour of the night live on TBS. And uh, I was pretty young. It, I, it was a struggle. It was it was near impossible. I just remember uh, wanting to tune in. I think it was the first time that Earnhardt's senior and junior yep. ever raced each other was um, in these Jap- uh, Japan races. Um, but they were a lot of fun. I wish that something like this still existed. Just a fun race in a different market, something just completely different out of the ordinary. Uh, and maybe we'll get there one day. But this was a really fun era. Uh, and I believe NASCAR Productions um, did a, a good segment on Hideo and this, and it aired on Fox, if I'm yeah, not uh, mistaken. on Race Hub, and it was awesome. Yeah, there you go. I think we had Sterling Marlin, you know, getting sushi for the first time. I mean, just think about that without even seeing it. And then you get to see it, right? I mean, think about that concept of Sterling Marlin and sushi in Japan. I mean, what a great segment that was. Reality is always better than fiction. So it was a good one. Yeah. So good time. And um, Hideo Fukuyama just uh, came into NASCAR, kind of did his thing, didn't perform very well. But I think fans and our listeners certainly should consider that that was more of a reward as opposed to trying to start something anew because uh, turns out pretty accomplished driver in his own right. Yeah. Good pick. Episode 66 Hideo Fukuyama edition of Positive Regression. Let's get to it. All right. Topic one for this episode, David, is defending the lead on green flag pit cycles. Uh, This is something you focus on a lot because it is something that can get you track position. But uh, let's go back to why we're talking about this. Go back a few days to Homestead. It was a race heavy on green flag runs, which also means green flag pit cycles. And at that track with heavy tire wear, that's a big deal. These green flag pit cycles. So I like to say I study at the school of David Smith, and that puts, as I said, an emphasis on track position, how it's obtained. So I've really started paying close attention, you know, where someone is running before the green flag pit cycle starts to where they come out after the green flag pit cycle and see, you know, how that plays out. And if a good decision was made, you know, if everything else uh, went correctly. So there was a time earlier in the race, Denny Hamlin dominated, but there was a time earlier in the race when he was second. And during a green flag pit cycle, they pitted one lap earlier than the leader. And who cycled out to the lead? It was Denny Hamlin and the 11 team. Fast forward to the final stage. The window opens up and it was Chase Elliott and crew who was running second. They pitted one lap before Denny. And look what happens. The nine came out with a sizable lead because of that decision to come one lap earlier. 
seeing that stuff. I know it's nerdy, but to me, it was fascinating, David, because come to find out, Chris Gabehart, we learned Denny Hamlin's crew chief, was actually scanning the Nine's radio and trying to match that call, trying to do exactly what the Nine did. But Alan Gustafson waited so long that it was too late for Gabehart to react to it. And that gave the Nine the lead. And, you know, look, under some circumstances, that would have been enough for the win. It's just that Denny Hamlin had such a good car that night. Um, But it it was it was fascinating to go back and forth and see exactly what they were doing to, like, kind of outdo each other and out jump each other with these green flag pit cycles. That may have been the most sophisticated strategic battle that we have seen in NASCAR this season to date. And when you were tweeting about that, it struck me that Gabe Hart was kicking himself is because he understood the the importance the magnitude of that decision um and you sent me his his quote in, in the in the presser saying that he was short i mean it was just one second he was scanning the nines radio and he was too slow by one second they weren't able to get the 11 car down to pit road in time so he pitted a lap later but what gabe hart wants to do here is incredibly difficult. He wanted to dictate the race from the lead, and that isn't easy. This is why average retention rates among the top five when pitting under green flag conditions is 56% right now, and the series-wide rate all-in is 68%, and last year that difference was 49 to 66. These positions, and especially the lead, are under fire and are most vulnerable primarily because the cars lacking the higher spot are most often proactive as opposed to reactive and vice versa. So lap times on old tires lengthened by a second and a half in this race at Homestead um, and in a battle this close, Chase Elliott could make up the deficit and then some if he pitted earlier and he did, and he did get the lead as a result of that. Um, I'm curious. I, I really wonder if Alan Gustafson knew that the 11 team would be waiting on them to make that decision. But by waiting so long, he put them in a corner, put them in a box, and it nearly worked. Yeah, and Gabehart, I followed up with Gabehart afterward. I mean, he gave he gave full credit to Alan Gustafson because uh, he Gabehart himself said he wanted to be the one controlling. And that that was specifically what I asked him, David. Is you know why react to the nine instead of being the one who controls and everyone reacts to you? Well, it turns out Gabehart wanted to be the one making the call and have everyone react to him. And, and he kind of just owned up to it in terms of, look, honestly, this is, uh, it may sound cliche, but it's a 180 mile per hour game of chess. And at a track like Homestead, the window is so small. They all kind of know when it is. It's just a matter of pulling the trigger. And Alan Gustafson got to it just that much, just a little quicker, Gabehart said. And he was kind of pissed at himself for it. But uh, so it didn't work that night. But, you, you know, I'm sure he learned something from that. But they were able to overcome with a faster car ultimately. But I, I think, you know, in hindsight, Gabehart was saying he would like to be the one who controls it, that everyone else reacts to. I don't know how easy that is. We saw, you know, it's not 100%, but uh, maybe that's something going forward that we look at with crew chiefs being the one everyone else should react to. I mean, really, for the most part, if you are in the lead, you're you are put in this position that uh, you I'm not going to say sitting duck because that's not the right answer. You could have a bigger lead and it really wouldn't matter. But 
this whole final stage at Homestead, maybe in terms of sheer action, like passing, I mean, it was pretty stagnant, but the fact that they were racing so fast and so close with the tire wear so high, that was sort of building into this final strategic decision. And they both had the right idea. They, I mean, they, they really were thinking the correct way. Alan Gustafson just, I, I mean, waited really late in the lap to order Chase Elliott down pit road. And that's very difficult to react to because you have to adjust or, uh, seemingly on the whim. It actually makes me think there wasn't some kind of coded language that Alan Gustafson used to, with Chase Elliott earlier that Gris K. Barton may not have picked up on. It, it seems to me that teams would just be better off if you're this close and in the lead, just sort of saying, okay, we are not in control here. We're not going to control our own destiny to the degree uh, that would suit our liking. It was Keith Rodden who once told me that the best defense in this instance, the instance that a car directly behind you pits, is to pit immediately, as soon as you can. And in this case, Gabe Hart was too late because that's how hard it is to settle into a position to pit under green. He he mitigated Elliott's gain by pitting the next lap. But if Gabe Hart didn't read that right, like if he didn't understand the scenario that was taking place uh, and Hamlin had waited another lap, Elliott would have gained a three-second advantage, two laps. It would have been 4.5 seconds. And at that point, and with how the race broke that we know of, that's the win. It's over. Chase Elliott is the Homestead winner. So Gabe Hart, even though he was unable to, as he put it, mash the button and give the command in time, they were still able to reduce the loss enough so that Hamlin's car speed, and you're right, the number 11 was the fastest in this race, uh, but they were able to ensure that his car speed was still a winning strength. And we saw an example of this go completely wrong. <laughs> the example of what not to do in 2018, the spring race at Phoenix, Kyle Busch led Kevin Harvick very late in that race. It was a green flag pit cycle uh, that was sort of looming. And uh, if memory serves me, Kevin Harvick did not short pit. It was fairly conservative within the cycle, uh, kind of smack in the middle of like the most populated laps. And that is where Adam Stevens should have pitted Kyle Busch immediately after. But instead, Kyle Busch stayed out four laps after Harvick pitted. Well, the fresh tires at Phoenix meant an increase of about eight tenths of a second per lap for Harvick, which overall, that's a 3.2 second head start on Bush for the remainder of that run. And that's how the race finished. That's how Harvick won the race. And that was a bad reaction by Adam Stevens. So the fact that Chris Gabehart is recognizing the situation coming into play, understands that he did lose. He did not, he did not hit plan A on the game plan, but he did nail plan B. And that was to pit immediately after just to reduce the overall loss and uh, as as we've said, Hamlin's car was uh, pretty fast, some some unimpeachable speed 
from the 11 team this weekend at Homestead. Yeah, and kudos to, to Gabe Hart and, and team for building that because there's plenty of scenarios in the past where we've seen whoever the leader is, it's it may be near impossible to maybe you track them down, but passing them a, a, another question. And Denny Hamlin had no problem doing that. So that, that's a testament to what the 11 had uh, under the hood and, and on that chassis. So, uh, but, you know, it was just fascinating. David, you know, as much as I try to learn from you, I still tend to to think I, I'm like one of the, the normal viewers, if you will, who's still trying to keep up and learn as, <laughs> from your teachings, if you will. And, and the other night, I really focused on that. And it was fascinating to see that chess game play out in terms of uh, who you know, was benefiting by pitting early and what one lap difference could make and, and the importance of crew chiefs making these calls. Uh, another shout out to Justin Alexander, who pitted Austin Dillon, I think, three or four laps earlier than everybody else and, and jumped a bunch of positions into the top 10 and got them a good a finish as well. So there are stories back there that if you're paying attention, you know, as the race plays out, it's a lot of good stuff there to watch. Yeah, those six total spots by Justin Alexander on behalf of Austin Dillon. That was huge. Also, we need to shout out Aaron Bearden for asking you what may have been the most bizarre question <laughs> of your your NASCAR Nation uh, Twitter guest spot. I think he asked you whether Alan Gustafson was the most tragic comedic clown or something. I don't know. It was great. And uh, I put that uh, bad signal out there for everyone to come bombard you and make sure that your life wasn't so easy. Yeah, we had some. It was it was pretty good. Well, good stuff. <laughs> uh, next up, topic: uh, a question from uh, Logan Reardon on Twitter. So thank you for following and thank you for listening to the podcast, Logan. But you had a great question. After A.J. Allmendinger's Atlanta win, uh, Logan says he went back and looked at his numbers. A.J. won the All-Star Preliminary Race in 2018 using a similar rules package. The next season, or in next season, he will be, what age, David? 39 years old. Any chance you think A.J. Allmendinger could thrive in a mid-pack cup ride or top Xfinity team? Great question. Great noticing how old A.J. Allmendinger will be as he has this uh, sudden kind of burst of success. Kind of makes you wonder, David, huh? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm curious, Alan. What, what, what do you think? Where, where, where do you think you can drop A.J. Allmendinger in right now and he will thrive? Well, I mean, I'm. <laughs> why not just look at where he is on that college racing team and and having uh, success there? Uh, I mean, I don't see why that would stop if he wasn't if he was part of a full time team over at college racing because he is uh, outdoing some of the other cars on that team and you know won the hundred thousand dollars. He won the race in Atlanta. Uh, he's doing something right over there. So I don't think why why would he not continue to thrive, especially with the number of uh, road courses they have in that series? I think that actually be great fit I, I i did put you on the spot there but i actually agree with you i think i think you hit the nail on the head i'm gonna try to have my answer make sense we know what he did well when he was last in the cup series he was an elite restarter everywhere he was a short run guy good on short tracks especially martinsville and good at Watkins Glen, uh, certainly more so than Sonoma, but he always qualified well at Sonoma, never seemed to get the finish, but his road course acumen precedes him. He's a you know former champ car guy. Makes sense. Him getting the mid-pack ride or even you know a borderline playoff ride, we need to take that in, into some consideration. Since we've seen him for a while, and it's 10 years in change, according to my notes, at the cup level, we sort of have a pretty firm grasp 
on who he is. And that likely won't change for the better. Now, Logan correctly pointed out he'll be 39 next year. And based on historical averages, AJ's numbers within the individual categories that he already does well in could improve, but his strengths should remain the same. His weaknesses would remain the same. Now, he's a short run guy. If we placed him in a short run car, perhaps a Stuart Haas car, I could envision a team subsisting on short runs and getting good finishes when races break with a late restart. Um, Long runs could be potentially a bit problematic. Could that formula get that team to the playoffs? Maybe, but Stuart Haas put three teams in the playoffs last year with drivers they have right now. And to pivot away from that when improvement isn't completely clear, I think at most it'd be a wash and it might not be worth such a move and that's in good equipment. So in mid-pack equipment, is this enough to get a mid-pack team into the playoffs or put them in a decent spot for making the playoffs? I don't think so. It would call for a lot of energy on Sonoma and Watkins Glen, which are tracks that have been dominated by big teams anyway in recent years. So I agree with you, Alan, that I think where he's at right now is really interesting. I was surprised that there were fans on social media actively surprised that he won at Atlanta. And I think that fails to consider how accomplished he is as a driver compared to the rest of that field. I mean, easily the most accomplished driver won that race. That's not a shock to me, right? Mm. So if this colleague team were to go full time with him, maybe they would compete for a title. I don't know if they have the the total all-in speed for that. I know that Ross Chastain said he believes they have Cup Series resources, which if that is the case, then he's probably drastically underperformed, but I don't believe it to be the case, and it's not at all hinted at by the colleague team's underlying performance numbers. But with Allmendinger, they could certainly rack up wins. You said it right. The Xfinity Series schedule with more road courses probably suits him better than the cup series schedule right now. But if he does become a full-time driver, peak age, that could mean a lot of wins. That could mean a legitimate shot at the championship. And that might be something that interests him. Good stuff. And uh, I don't know what's been announced. Maybe I missed it, but if they can still chase the $100,000, I would expect to see AJ in that car once again, and and wish you continued success. Good to have you back, Dinger. Good stuff. Next topic, a question from Todd Haynes on Twitter. Again, thank you for submitting. We love this. Uh, it appears to me the Fords have more short-run speed and the Toyotas, or Gibbs, have more long-run speed. Is this the case? And if so, what is this a product of? Why is it so specific to teams? I can't spot a pattern with Chevy. They seem to be hit or miss. Uh, David, I, I, I feel like just initially hearing that question, this is more team related than manufacturer related. When he says, you know, it appears the Fords have more short run speed. Uh, I, I think of Kevin Harvick or I think of Stuart Haas or at least Kevin Harvick uh, on Stuart Haas racing, maybe not necessarily all Fords, but uh, is that how you think of it or how do you want to address this one? Yeah. So not all manufacturers cars can do the same thing, right? That's That is a pretty popular misconception, so we can correct it right here. 
the the first one that comes to mind is Chevrolet's improvement from last year to this year, thanks in part to the new car. And while there is a modicum of correctness, that is kind of failing to give credit to Hendrick and RCR for working diligently and putting in resources to be able to take advantage of the new car. You cannot say the same thing about Chip Ganassi Racing, whose speed numbers right now are not great, or or at the very least, just zero improvement from last year. Uh, Hendrick's speed numbers lean toward long run speed but Chase Elliott's car is the fastest in the series, and it's the fastest specifically on short runs. Hmm. He just isn't an elite restarter, and that sometimes gets lost when assessing uh, strictly with your eyes. And similarly, RCR's cars are much faster on long runs. They're ranked 11th and 13th compared to 17th and 19th on short runs and perception skews here because uh, we, I mean, we remember Austin Dillon's best showings this season coming as a result of late race restarts, but that, that doesn't suffice as the whole story for RCR this year. They have brought an improved race program to all tracks and that's bearing out for the most part on long runs. For the Fords, I think you hit it on the head. Stuart Haas racing pretty much all short run, which makes sense. That suits their best driver's strength uh, in Kevin Harvick. I would argue that Penske sort of does everything very well, but nothing lights out all the time. We've seen recent examples of this. Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano have won races thanks to late restarts, but if we think last week to Martinsville, Penske brought incredible long run speed to, to a single race at a short track at Martinsville. Their drivers are malleable enough to where they can take advantage of whatever their crew chiefs bring to the track. And Joe Gibbs racing has had better long run speed than most other teams, but their short run speed still very good, still, still elite. And if for some reason it isn't, and we've seen that at times this season, it really helps that they happen to employ Martin Truex and Kyle Busch and Denny Hamlin, who are more than capable restarters. So even in a deficit, they have the talent to account for it. Yeah. And I checked Todd for you with some friends in the garage and it is uh, on its most basic level, a team can build a short run car, if you will, or one that tends toward long run speed. And that uh, that can be intentional or that can just be the result of what the strength of the team is. As one person explained it to me, some teams, they're better aerodynamically, right? That's what their focus is. And that's where a lot of their grip comes from. Other teams, they go more mechanical grip. That's where all their focus is and technology and smarts, if you will. And those can lead to two different things on the racetrack. So uh, different ways of building the cars, different ways of benefiting from your strengths. So not necessarily a uh, manufacturer thing, but more of the team approach each week. So good question, Todd. Uh, as always, send in your questions because we just had some really great ones from listeners. That was really cool of you guys. So uh, let's move on, David, to our Talladega preview because uh, it's fun. It's fun to be back. I, I love 
uh, well, I, was, I was about to say restriction plate racing, but I can't say that anymore for the second year. <laughs> but I love the super speedways, David. I love Daytona, love Talladega. And we are heading back since since uh, a good Daytona race, obviously, that ended with the Ryan Newman crash as it did. But uh, that, that turned out the best way possible. And now we are heading back to Talladega. David, I know a track close to your heart. Uh, yeah, well, I was born there, not at the track in the city, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> not at the track. Good. Yeah. I, uh, uh, well, there may have been people born at the, born at the track. That wouldn't <laughs> shock me now. Um, you know what? I, I will say this, I would say in lieu of our normal preview, I'm kind of interested in one driver for, oh, yeah. for this weekend. And that's Joey Logano. Okay. And it's not, it's not strictly his talent. It is, Sort of the things that that team, the 22 team uh, last year and even uh, in February at Daytona do well. And I think we can see that replicated by not only other Penske teams, but other teams in general. So I'm going to hit on uh, the importance of pit strategy at Talladega because which I mean, just saying that, David, is it might be odd to some to hear that pit strategy yeah. at Talladega, because whether it be, you know, you figure caution, you come in and pit, but we've also seen green flag pit stops. I, you just don't, you know, coming off a track like the Atlantas or homesteads of the world. I, I, I think a lot of people don't naturally assume there is pit strategy at a place like Tra- Talladega. So it's interesting. We even bring this up. Yeah. And it's the opposite reasoning from like Atlanta and Homestead. There's practically no tire wear at Talladega. So using pit strategy as a track position method is something that we saw from Joey Logano's team last year uh, in the spring race. They restarted as the leader on lap 185 with a staggered set of tires, 52 laps on the right side tires, 72 laps on his left side tires, and 72 laps at Talladega for the Mathiverse is over 191 miles. So uh, no, there's not much fall off, and that is the trick. But the point of these kinds of stops is to leapfrog cars without having to pass them on the track. Because when you get in traffic, you get into a cluster. When clusters happen, the big one happens. And you don't want that to happen to your team. We saw another manner of this being done in the Daytona 500 when the Joe Gibbs racing cars pitted prior to the end of the first stage, did not pit at all during the stage break. And then they inherited the top spots in the running order on the restart. And that meant they got clean air without putting themselves in harm's way. And that's huge. That'll be something to watch for this weekend. These alternative methods for getting to the front, the, the, this, this extra track position, if you will, that'll be something to watch for these, these teams just able to move up through the running order without ever being in heavy traffic, because if you're not in heavy traffic, you're not in the big one. Alan, what do you think? Uh, no, I, I agree. And uh, the big one can ruin some days. Uh, it's, it's funny you bring up the, the end result. You know, we're seeing the big one toward the end in some of these races. But with stage points, that pit strategy, David, could sacrifice some of those stage points. But if you are out there collecting them and then get caught up in a crash at the end of the race, uh, 
you know, relying on those stage points, potentially 18 or 16 of them, and then getting in a crash at the end, it doesn't make your day as bad if you are indeed out there chasing those stage points. Uh, is that a good way to look at it? I mean, in terms of how aggressive you can be or what pit strategy you may want, because if you pit early, you don't get those stage points and that could make a crash at the end all the more worse, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, because in the past, a good day didn't ensure a good finish. And now... It's placed two critical points in spots in these races that saw relatively contained racing because the threat of the big one is real. You don't want to be wiped out in this large multi-car crash. I would argue this Talladega is the track where I believe the implementation of stages has unquestionably improved the racing. And a good example of this was last fall with Joey Logano, who (laughs) secured 44 points uh, and finished 11th, but he earned the second most points in the race. And it was because he was getting quality out of his stage finishes to a point where the overall finish, even though it wasn't what uh, was probably commensurate with the effort, it still ended up being a great day and it was in the thick of the playoffs and that meant a lot to that 22 team. So we can see something like that this weekend if indeed a big accident arises before uh, the end of the final stage. Those first two stages could dictate how a team leaves Talladega thinking. I mean, if you're if you're leaving with 30 points in your pocket, but a 30th place finish, it's a bad result, but it's not a bad day. Yeah. And if you think about it, Daytona, Talladega and Daytona right before the playoff. I mean, those are what, 10, 20, 60 points. Those are 60 potential stage points at these play tracks that uh, are again, play tracks. Sorry, but those are 60 potential points that, uh, that that could help you, you know, get into the playoffs, especially if you are, you know, trying to point your way in. So it, it is something to think about, even on uh, tracks like Talladega and, and Daytona. We keep mentioning Joey Logano's name because of his record there and how good he is, especially recently. David, I look back, you look back to 2015, uh, that, that's 10 races at Talladega since then, three crashes, but also three wins and a bunch of other single place uh, finishes like, you know, up there. Uh, I mean, he's, he's winning as much as he crashes, which is a good, uh, I, I think, number to have, especially when <laughs> that number is three wins. What? Is he the best out there, at least at Talladega? I mean, I, I'm sure his his Penske teammate, Brad Kislowski would rival that. And uh, Ryan Blaney's pretty damn good, his other Penske teammate. But you, you can't argue with Joey's record at Talladega for some reason. Yeah, Keselowski's there too. Uh, but I, there's something that does stick out about Joey Logano recently, based on what you've said. I mean, even all in... He has three wins and 22 career starts, and that's a better winning percentage than Jeff Gordon, who had six and 46. And we think very highly of Jeff Gordon at Talladega, so we should think highly of Joey Logano. And I think what Logano does better than anyone else right now at Talladega is dictate the race from the lead. And he has this ability to time a block on an opposing lane to the point that it's not so much of a block. It actually, if you watch it, it looks like he's hopping on to the coming line and then taking off with it. And I spoke about this particular move with his spotter, TJ Majors, back in Daytona. 
this was after Logano had a block just like this in the Bush clash. Not the late block on Le- on Keselowski, not that one. That was a bad one, but one earlier in the race that allowed Logano to keep the lead. And Major said that this sort of thing is indeed something that they think about and they work on and they try to time it once the lane is coming, but that is difficult because it's sort of a moving target if you go through the years. Uh, Going back a few years, we've seen different horsepower outputs at Talladega, and this season, we're going to see them go about a second per lap slower per NASCAR's own estimate. And uh, all of this, all of these horsepower changes changes the effect of the closing rate, and it makes this move difficult to execute from one race to the next. But Logano has been able to adjust and still execute better than most anyone. I think William Byron had a really clean one in the Daytona dual race, but I've never seen anyone do it at Talladega quite like Logano. And I don't think I've seen anyone dictate the lead at Talladega like this, maybe since Dale Jr. I I, want to say, I I think that's, that's kind of the territory that Logano is, is entering right now. Hall of Famer Dale Jr. (laughs) Hall of Famer Dale Jr. Yeah. I think this is kind of the territory that Logano's in and he may not get the result. It is Talladega after all, but he is a sight to behold on this track. It's something special. So our listeners should, uh, should just watch and just kind of soak it in, even if they don't uh, particularly care for Logano, at least have some respect uh, for his mastery in this regard. At least we get to witness the mastery. I hope we uh, will see some of it on Sunday as well. Uh, Let's get to our favorite, at least my favorite part, at least when I'm right. uh, Every every week, David, we pick our contrarian contender picks. Uh, Someone who, you know, you're maybe not looking at. uh, Maybe you want to pick a a dark horse for the win or someone, if you're a fantasy player, maybe that low budget guy that might get you a top five or top ten. David, last week I picked Austin Dillon. I felt like that was a very good pick, so I'm patting myself on the back. Any other failures I've had, we forget about those, but um, I'm riding a streak right now, so that's pretty good. (laughs) David, let's look toward Talladega. Who is your contrarian contender pick for Talladega? My contrarian pick, Ryan Newman, if only because he consistently puts himself in statistically advantageous positions to where he avoids these big crashes. And that's kind of the key to to these races is survival. And that he is around at the ends of these races, it is not a fluke. Uh, we know what happened at Daytona, but consider last fall at Talladega. He was nipped at the start-finish line by Ryan Blaney for the win. Uh, Newman seems like a pretty stubborn dude, so I don't see uh, him changing his approach. But uh, I also don't question his approach because if we sit and look at the numbers of the participation, the uh, the inclusion rates of positions in crashes, it's top four or back 10. And I think we're going to see a lot of Ryan Newman Writing the rear uh, for for good reason. He he does that. That's that's a methodical choice. It's part of the plan, and I think we'll see him at the end of this race. 
Uh, and let it be known, David picked Ryan Newman as his contrarian contender for Daytona. And that turned out uh, pretty damn well in terms of finish. Obviously, everyone knows what I'm not referring to, but Ryan Newman damn near won the race. So, David, you get full credit for that Daytona pick, and uh, you'll probably have another good one on Sunday by picking Newman again. David, for my pick, I, I, I went back to last year. I know it's a little superficial, but uh, I found a driver that finished 11th and 7th at Talladega and 6th and 18th at Daytona. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Do you know who that driver is? Sure. Is it Michael McDowell? That driver is Corey LaJoy. Oh, okay, okay. Corey LaJoy is my contrarian contender pick for Talladega, uh, because why not? He's in the news. We've been talking about him. Uh, We kind of hyped him up last week on last week's episode. But in in terms of equipment, we, we know what it is, but... When I see those finishes, David, with the equipment that he has, there also has to be some mentality or mindset to these races, right? There is a skill level when it comes to super speedway racing. There has to be some attitude or approach, some intangible that I feel like just some drivers have in terms of patience or just picking the right lane or not being too aggressive when they shouldn't, making good decisions. I'm attributing some of that to Corey LaJoy's success, and I think he does it again on uh, on Sunday. And again, like I'm saying, if you're a fantasy player and you only get so many starts or you're looking for a low budget guy, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if some of the budget games have him as a as a higher price driver that, that maybe is not necessarily a deal if they are paying attention because he gets you results at these tracks. So he is my pick for a contrarian contender in Talladega. Did LaJoy nearly win the Talladega iRace? Um, I don't remember. I apologize. I, I, I feel like I feel like he did, though, and it was kind of a thing. But uh, regardless, you're right. I mean, that's going to be another driver that's probably going to have to just by the nature of his uh, his team is going to have to put himself in intelligent spots. And I don't think we're going to see him compete for stage points. I don't know that that's really going to help him, but a win would help that team because that would get them in the playoffs. Uh, so it would behoove him to have a very intelligent day at Talladega. Looking forward to it. Hopefully he can prove us right. Corey LaJoy, contrarian contender. All right, good episode. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review and tell a friend. That stuff really does help. It's spreading the word. We absolutely notice and it is appreciated. If you have questions, we just spent an episode answering them. You know we like to answer them. So send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working so hard. Trucks, Xfinity, Cup, every all the stats. What are you working on today? This week on Motorsports Analytics, I looked at... Leaders restarting on old tires, whether it was the catch 22 that everyone makes it out to be. Turns out not so much. I uh, looked at 333 restarts between 2019 and 2020 to unearth the exact numbers behind this great predicament. And that is posted right now. It is free at motorsportsanalytics.com. Please give it a read. Please prepare to have your opinion changed. Did you hear what the man just said? He analyzed 333 pit stops for your benefit, and he's given it to you. So click on the damn article and support his website. That's just my uh, 
pulpit up there. Sorry, David. I appreciate uh, that. That's no right. problem. <laughs> Read the damn thing. It's worth it. You'll learn something. Uh, I'll be, uh, you know, I'm doing race up, keep it on the Fox family all weekend. Uh, I'm interviewing the Xfinity winner after the Talladega race. That should be pretty good. Uh, also on Sunday, I'm participating in a new app, a new experience called uh, Facebook Venue. It's it's an app called Venue. They've been doing it the last few weeks, and it's just a chance to talk racing during the event, and it has some uh, cool quirks of its own with polls and questions and stuff we can do so try to check that out uh, it'll be my first time being a host on that new venue app so uh, we're all gonna learn it together so that should be good and uh what else i got going on uh, that's about it just keep it on the fox family networks fs1 fox watch all the good racing it's just good to have it back and i'm excited for talladega another good episode under our belts episode 66 of positive regression for david smith i'm alan Kavana. thanks for listening everybody To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got GEICO, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. GEICO will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. GEICO. Great service. Without all the drama.